churches come in all shapes and sizes. They have looked different in every culture for the past 2,000 years. But the thing they have in common is their mission to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts shows us how the first disciples practiced community, cared for one another, and ultimately fulfilled the Great Commission. It helps us understand God's plan for his people and his design for the church. Hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Um, as Jordan said, we have a whole lot of new stuff kind of going on here. So, you know, if something goes out, just roll with it. We'll be good. I'm going to pray and then uh, we'll look at Acts chapter 8. I want to give us a little bit of a review. Uh, a review is actually pretty necessary so we can make sure that we, we know what's going on. So let's pray and we'll be in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would come now and use your word to give us great gospel hope in Christ and send us out uh, with, with boldness and courage to live out uh, this gospel calling to be on mission. We pray that this particular text this morning would give us a lot of encouragement. I, I pray that people wouldn't feel... Like this is an insurmountable task, but instead, Lord, <clears throat> they would hear and see what you're calling us to and desire deeply to join in on the mission. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me uh, give you a little bit of a, a reminder of what's going on. Uh, and this is why this is the perfect example of why we preach through books of the Bible. If we were to just drop in on Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. You, you would likely not have any idea, and I wouldn't be able to um, fully explain what's really going on. But because we've been building on each particular week, when we get to this particular place, you're seeing just how amazing the sovereignty of God is and exactly what he's been doing. So just a little bit of a reminder. If you look at Acts chapter 6, uh, there was the apostles doing the preaching and teaching. And a need arose from the widows that were Hellenist or the Greek-speaking Jews. And the apostle said, we need to continue to make sure that we preach. So we're going to pick other people to be able to do that. So they picked seven men to be able to serve the tables to those that needed, the widows that need to make sure they were getting their food. And if you look, um, it says in verse 5 that the seven that they picked were, were Stephen, man full of faith, and Philip. And Prochorus and Nicanor, and you can keep going. And they set those people before the Lord in verse 7. <clears throat> and as they waited the tables and made sure the, people were getting their, the widows were getting their food, the apostles continued to preach. And you can see what the result in verse 7 was. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the Lord used that decision, which was the right decision. And the gospel kept going forward. Well, after that, there's a little bit of a description of Philip. So Philip, what, I'm sorry, of, of Stephen. Stephen wasn't just uh, a table waiter, if you will. He was also a very gifted man. And you can see it talks about that in verse in the rest of chapter 6, um, from 8 all the way through verse 15, that he was um, 
full of grace, full of power. He went to the synagogue and did evangelism in verse 9. He disputed with them. In verse 10, it talks about how he had wisdom and he was speaking with wisdom. And when all this was going on, they got really upset. They didn't like what he was doing. They, they rejected the message of Christ. And you can see in verse 13, they did some things. They set up false witnesses. Uh, and they said that they spoke lies. They said he never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. Um, and so verse uh, 14 and 15 say that they said Jesus is going to destroy the place and change the customs. So he, they said he had a misunderstanding of the temple and the law. And it was a misunderstanding. It was the right understanding that he said Jesus is not going to um, destroy the physical temple, but it's going to be his body in three days that will, that will go into the grave and come back up. And he's not going to change the law or change the custom. It's just that he's the fulfillment of them. And then all of chapter 7... Um, last week, they, they, brought him, they brought Stephen before the entire council and they said, are these things so? And then he goes into a, a long, long speech explaining to them why his view of the temple and the law is exactly right and why their temple view of the temple and the law is exactly wrong. And he explains how the temple doesn't just represent where only the place of the, of the presence of God exists, but all throughout Israel's history... The, the, the presence of God has been present. And he uses different examples all the way through. <clears throat> and at the very end, um, just to kind of rub their nose into it, if you will, um, but not in a, in, a, in a sinful way, I don't think. He calls them, in verse 51, stiff neck, I'm circumcised in the heart. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Your fathers used to kill the prophets. Um, you, you even killed God. You've betrayed and murdered God, and you don't even know the law. I'm the one that knows the law. So he, he takes off a bunch of things, obviously, uh, that they wouldn't like. And you can see in, in verse four, 54, it says they became enraged. They ground their teeth at him. They covered their ears. They, they ran at him. And eventually, they killed him. So you can imagine, this was, the, this was the first time that a Christian had been killed. So we, we call Stephen the first martyr. They had been persecuted in chapter 5. And they left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. But they weren't killed. Here, someone's actually killed. And Saul, who eventually become a Christian, is holding their coats as they profusely sweat, throwing rocks at Stephen to eventually kill him. So at this, at this point, there's a, there's a little bit of a transition. You can imagine the church at verse, verse 1 uh, in chapter 8. and says, and Saul approved of this execution. And there it is. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. So you can imagine the, the position or the thoughts of the church now. Okay, following Jesus meant maybe some persecution, maybe some bad stuff. Maybe we can be counted worthy to, be, to suffer for the name. To this new thing now where you have someone's actually killed for the faith. So, this is a bigger deal. It's not just, you know, they'll say bad things. They'll tell us to stop. Maybe they'll beat us up a little bit. Now, people are actually dying for being Christians. And so there's this little point where they're thinking to themselves, we've got to make a decision whether we're in or out. Are, are we going to stay here? Part of the church? Stay part of this, this movement, this, this, the way that the book of Acts calls it, or, I mean, someone's dying now. Do we want to just say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. So, I mean, it's a real belief, a real thought that every, I think every person in this church was confronted with at that moment. So you can imagine if you were in those, in, the, in, in, their, in their shoes, people are dying now for the faith. What am I going to do? Am I going to stay? Am I going to keep following Jesus or you know, this is not what I signed up for. Not dying. And they're all confronted with this. Now, I, I want to remind you something. Because the sovereignty of God is... 
an amazing thing. It, it's, it's so unbelievable how the Lord brings about his purposes. If you remember, one of the thesis statements of the book of Acts that, that Luke made sure he started out with, it's the, the great commission of the book of Acts, the great commission in Matthew 28 that you will go make disciples. And, and Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Luke is, is intentionally uses this verse as his great commission thesis statement to give us an understanding of how what, what's going to unfold in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's what we've seen so far. Chapters 1 through 7. They've been witnesses. Martureo, where we get our word martyr from. You're going to be witnesses in these particular places. Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And whenever we were looking at this verse, I said, and that's the outline of the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 is Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13, Judea and Samaria. And then after that, the ends of the earth. He, he intentionally has that particular verse as his chosen outline for these 28 chapters he's going to write. Now, we know that that's the Lord's purpose. The Lord is going to bring about that. He, he is going to cause those particular people to be witnesses in Jerusalem and then expanding out to Judea and Samaria and then expanding out eventually to the ends of the earth. But the means by which that's going to happen, they don't know. They probably think it's the normal means. We're going to be good, good Christian church here. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going fine. A few people are going to feel called. We're going to pray for them. We're going to lay our hands on them. We're going to send them out to that city and send them out like we do. Send them out to that city. And they're going to joyfully, gleefully go over to this particular unreached place and sit down and do life and make disciples, etc. And it's not, it's not the means that we would think. But the sovereignty of God is an amazing thing. Stephen has been brutally killed for standing up for Christ. And in this moment, as I said, the church is fearful. The church is scared. The church is terrified. But, amazingly, this was the plan of God the entire time. Not how we would think it would happen. Not how I would write it. But Stephen's death did not take God by surprise. As a matter of fact, in his sovereignty, it was his plan the whole time. The command to be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but also to Judea and Samaria, is going to happen now, not in spite of Stephen's death, but primarily because of Stephen's death. Because they're fearful, because they're scared they're going to die, they're saying, I'm getting out of Jerusalem, and guess where they're going to go? Judea and Samaria. And what are Christians going to do when they leave one region and go to another? They're going to be Christians. And we'll talk about what that means soon. The sovereignty of God, as I said, is an amazing thing. This death of Stephen and God's sovereign hand drives these people who would have likely stayed in Jerusalem for a long time quicker than they would have anticipated to Judea and Samaria to go fulfill Acts 1.8. God is going to get the people to obey Acts chapter 1 verse 8 to be witnesses to these particular places and move them out of Jerusalem with the death of Stephen because of persecution. So if we're going to make an application, and I think this is an absolute important application to think about. We're going to read the text here in just a second. Likely for us in this post postmodern America and really now global society, 
the way that we're going to reach our country and the rest of the countries that we want to live in and um, immerse and, and pervade and, and, and reach with the gospel is likely not going to be with ease and comfort, but instead is going to be by persecution. Our goal is not to take over the country um, and make it Christianese by infiltrating the government and and trying to get everybody to understand what's happening. Instead, likely, it's going to be by persecution and us being the church and proclaiming the gospel as a persecuted people. Not trying to take over, but instead through persecution, being the church and proclaiming the gospel to people. That's how we're going to see this country be reached. It's not the old way. Tertullian says it this way. Regarding persecution being the impetus to massive evangelism. Kill us. Torture us. Condemn us. Grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of the Christians is seed. The blood of the Christians or killing them and persecuting is what gives birth to evangelism. Not what squelches it. The way that this country will be reached likely will be through persecution, not by trying for Christians to try to take over. So the attempt to stop the church by the religious has begun. Saul is approved of this execution. And you can see in verse 1, and there arose a great persecution against the church. That's everyone. That's all the called out ones in Jerusalem. And they were scattered then throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except... This is interesting. The apostles. Huh. The leaders didn't leave. Well, they were full Jews. They were respected. Killing them would have been dangerous. They knew that their lives weren't necessarily in jeopardy. But the rest of them, the peons, if you will, the common folk Christians, they didn't have the the stature, the stout, the, the place that the apostles held. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and everyone else left. The leaders stayed and everyone else left. We're going to get to that in a second. Verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and a great lamentation was made over him. But let's go back to verse 3. The persecution that's happening. Paul or Saul was ravaging the church. This word ravage is brutal and sadistic cruelty. If you were to try to... Feel the full impact of what's going on. This is brutal and sadistic cruelty happening to the church. So this isn't just a a little bit of persecution. Everyone is receiving the full brunt of this. It started with Stephen and then just like a wave took over. And they're trying to kill everyone they can. Brutal and sadistic cruelty. Entering house after house. And dragging men and women and committing them to prison. So they were brutally and sadistically, with very um, and cruel intentions, grabbing men and women. This was not a, an isolated few that were receiving this. House after house after house after house are all receiving the full brunt of the stinging effects of per- persecution. The whole Christian community that remained was being persecuted. And what happens? They run out and they leave. One day... This will happen to the church today in America. It will happen. It will be like in some form or fashion like this. 
And if God will show his kindness and his grace to us and pull us out of our slumber, it will also be the catalyst for great evangelism to happen in this country. Paul even says in Galatians 1.13, talking about this particular time in his life, he said, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. He didn't care if you're a man or a woman. It says he dragged them off. A full onslaught of persecution happened. What's going to happen? Will the religious council be successful? Will they end this thing? Or will they be a failure? And the church keep going. Will the church now become so weakened that nothing's going to happen? Or will it be stronger and more vibrant than ever? What's going to happen? Luke is warning us to be on the edge of our seat and thinking as we read verses 1 through 3. Well, it's over. That's it. Well, look at what happens. Now, those who are scattered, the persecuted, the, the dispersion or the diaspora as sometimes called, went about preaching the word. <laughs> they didn't cower. They didn't, they didn't run away. We went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So he went right to where Acts 1.8 said. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard this and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many that were possessed. Crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed were, and lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. The, the title of this sermon, if you will, is, is Missiological Takeaways. In this short little text, we're going to see some missiological takeaways. In other words... Things that we can take away, things that we can apply that can help us be better missionaries. Missiologically, if we look at the things in here, we will get better as missionaries if we see some of the things. So here's the first one that I want you to see. And remember, as we look at this whole section of 1 through 8, God is sovereign and brings about gospel expansion through unexpected means. Persecution. Persecution was the God-ordained means that brought about the gospel expansion. That is not how I would have written it. I would have never thought, take one of the best guys ever, Stephen, and have him preach a really insulting sermon to the religious council. Have them kill him brutally. Then, because of that, everybody gets mad, goes house to house, killing every people. They're scared to death that they all have to run out of the city just so they can keep their families alive. And that will be the thing that gets them to the other cities to start talking about Jesus. None of us would have written it that way. And yet, that's the exact way that God did it. He knows that gospel expansion needed to happen. And in His sovereign hand, brings about gospel expansion through quite unexpected means. Namely, persecution. Persecution. I want you to see this little process. Verse 1 is the execution persecution. If you continue in verse 1... Because of that, that creates the scattering. Persecution comes, the dispersion or the scattering happens. Because of the persecution, what happens when they go down to the the regions? Um, Verse 4 and verse 5, preaching and proclaiming. That's the way it happens. Persecution causes the scattering, causes the preaching and proclaiming to other, other places. And some notes on the scattering, just to remind you. The apostles are not used in the scattering. The leadership stays in Jerusalem. And those that scattered went about preaching the word. And if you continue reading, which we'll see in just a second. Actually, you can go ahead and turn over. This 
this persecution that happens, if you go over to verse 11, chapter 11, we actually get to see. We'll fast forward several weeks and let you see the end result. What happens when, it, when this happens? Go to chapter 11, go to verse 19. You, you get to see the end. I'll, I'll let you know what happens. Chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So that's the people that we're talking about right now. What did they do? They didn't just go to these particular places. They also went as far as Phoenician, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word, to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who went on uh, coming to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And what happened? When they were finally sent out and they went all over the place, because of the scattering, and it tells us right there in verse 19, because of the scattering, because of the persecution of Stephen, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The Lord blessed it, and many people came to Christ with quite an unexpected means. It was never in our minds what would be persecution that would cause this. Stott says, instead of smothering the gospel, persecution succeeded in only spreading the gospel. So the first missiological takeaway that I want us all to take away is this. God is sovereign and he brings about gospel expansion through unexpected means. Unexpected means. The next thing I want you to see, and I want to key in on one little verse. One little verse. If you go back up to verse 1, the very end. There arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then it says this. Except the apostles. Again, that's not how we would have chosen it, right? We need the best leaders. If we're going to go to a new place that doesn't know anything, we need to take the best teachers. The leadership needs to go to these new places because that's how we're going to most effectively, most efficiently reach people that have never heard anything. It's not the, the common folk church. that They can't teach. We don't need them. We need the apostles. Well, (laughs) through the sovereign hand of God, not only is it persecution, but he intentionally keeps the leadership in the city of Jerusalem and doesn't let them go to Judea and Samaria. And I think it's for this express purpose to help the church realize that you don't need the leadership. You don't need the leadership. You need the Holy Spirit and you need people in love with Jesus. That's what's going to happen. So a, a, a second missiological takeaway is not only does it happen on unexpected means, is this. And this, this is absolutely, absolutely applies to you. It, it doesn't apply to me at all. It doesn't apply to me. At all. I'm an elder pastor. I'm the teacher, if you will. This fully applies to you. God uses everyone for gospel work. He intentionally keeps the leadership in Jerusalem so that the Regular common folk church, and I'm, I'm air quoting because I don't think they're regular nor common. They're the ones that go do the evangelism. And as we see in chapter 11, they're the ones that have the great success. That means the indispensable people of evangelism, the indispensable people of evangelism are you. One commentary I read said 99.9% of Christians are not in the ministry. There's no way that we will evangelize this earth unless the 99.9% of people 
that are not in the ministry full time do the work of ministry. You are the indispensable key for gospel expansion throughout the world. God intentionally keeps the leadership who we would all pick to be the front lines to stay in this particular city and sends out the rest of the church. And what do they do? They evangelize. They do the work. Now, verse 4. Now those who were scattered were scared to death, lived lives in fear, and didn't do anything. No, no, it says it all, right? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I want to tell you a quick story. So, um, my father-in-law was cutting the grass in his front yard one day. And as he's cutting his, his grass, he, he lives right on the line of, of South Carolina, Georgia. And so he's got a lot of Georgia in him. And I'll, I'll tell you what that means in a second. So he's cutting his grass in a neighborhood. <laughs> in a neighborhood. And as he's cutting the grass, um, during the day, he comes upon a snake in the yard. And so what does he do? Like all of us, right? He goes inside and gets his 9 millimeter. And sounds off about 12 shots in the front yard in the neighborhood to shoot the snake. And so <laughs> you're thinking to yourself, like me, what? <laughs> what causes, besides the obvious, redneck, to, to, for someone to go into their house because they see a snake? Not like most of us, just go inside, wait a few hours, make sure it's gone, go back out. You know, it's, it's better for me to live rather than someone steal my lawnmower. And, and, and finally, go back out there and see the thing's gone and cut the grass. What causes him, when he sees the snake, to think, I know what I need to do in the neighborhood during the day? Go get my 9 millimeter and come out here and at least shoot 10 or 12 shots in the front yard. And kill the snake and, and miss, 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 miss. Take him off. Maybe he'll strike me. No, no. Miss, miss. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Like, what causes that? It's, it's an innate thing. It's a, it's a thing inside of him called redneck that causes him to think this is the best solution to this problem. Right? If you have this, if you're around... Um, trucks and you're like, ooh, truck. Or if you, you like to ride horses or you want to shoot deer or you have belt, have like a like for belt buckle or plaid or jeans and, and all this. It's, it's an innate thing inside of you. Being from the South, you just can't help it. Like, I like guns and I, I, I think sometimes, I, I never want to try You think to yourself, I never want to try it, but chewing tobacco does seem cool, doesn't it? Like, it's just something inside of you. It's like redneck in you. That's what's in him, right? The innate thing inside of him, redneck, makes him do this. All right, here's my whole point, right? The same is true with Christianity. The innate thing inside of you should cause you to want to actually live as a Christian. What's inside of him made him do this, right? But what's inside of them, namely the Holy Spirit, the innate calling as a Christian to just live like a Christian is what causes this to happen. The reason why when they went to a city, persecuted and scared to death, that they're over here and didn't cower, didn't... didn't run away and, and just say, we're going to be quiet and just live the rest of our lives and not die. But when they, even they get to this other city, even though they're persecuted, start telling people about Jesus is because it's innate to them. They have to talk about Jesus. They can't not do it. They have to do it. That's what happens here. You see, now those who were scattered because of persecution, because they had been been tortured, they they saw people who were being ravaged and entering house to house and dragged off and committing men and women to prison. They saw that. They likely saw the church and Stephen be killed. And they go to another city. They think, we got to do it again. There's something inside of them that can't not talk about the gospel. 
Those who were scattered, what did they do? They went about preaching. This word preaching, it's not the fairest way because I, I, I know it makes you think um, what I'm doing. But that's not it. It's, it's actually just they went about uh, sharing the good news. They went about spreading the good news. Or really, they went about gospeling other people. That's really the better understanding of it. They, they just went out to another city and they gospeled people. They preached the good news. They preached the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So I, I want you to... And this, this particular mission will take away... For those of you that have been Christians a long time and never find yourself doing evangelism, there's something innate in you about being a Christian that should cause you to continually do evangelism. You should not, not be talking about Jesus. You you have to start talking about him. So here's the third missiological takeaway is this. And this is for all of you that are Christians that don't find yourself ever talking about Christ. There is an implicit understanding in all of, all of Scripture, an implicit understanding or teaching of Scripture that Christians are to preach Christ. That's just the, the words here. Gospel the, the people around them. Share the good news. Spread the good news. You can put anything you want there. There's just an implicit understanding from, from the teachings of Scripture, that Christians are to spread the good news wherever they go in life. That's just the way they lived. It's not the special ones. Remember, the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. The, the common, everyday, regular Joe Schmo and Jane Schmo Christians were the ones that went out to these cities and they just lived their life as Christians. And when it means to just live your life as Christians, it's just... Part of it. They innately know they're supposed to gospel the city. So for everyone here that's a Christian, that's been a Christian for a long time, and you don't commonly find yourself gospeling, I want you to hear this. It's just commonplace in Scripture for Christians to talk about Jesus with unbelievers as they go through life. That's the way the Bible paints everyday life. It's living as the church Everyday life with gospel intentionality. That's the way you and I are supposed to live. That's the way the Bible describes Christians. A historian named Kenneth Latourette says it this way. And this is true. The chief agents in the expansion of Christianity over the last 2,000 years appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried on their livelihood in some purely secular manner. And that just doesn't mean pagan. That doesn't mean pagan. It just means in, in vocation. They were, they, were, they were secular in their vocation. They weren't Christians. The chief agents of expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women like you, who carried it on in their regular job, if you will, and they spoke of their faith as they met people in a natural fashion. I've already said this before. The indispensable people of the work of the evangelism for the church is you. That's the only way it's going to happen. The church has to, that's all of us, live our lives every day with gospel intentionality. So we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I engaging in this kind of evangelism on a daily basis? Because the innate way 
that these people lived, the implicit teaching of Scripture is that Christians just went about proclaiming the gospel. As they did, went to the marketplace, as they had their job, as they watched the Panthers win the Super Bowl this year, as they, like everything they did, they did as Christians, telling people about Christ. Now, let's look at something else. This is, this was mind-blowing, perhaps for you, it was for me. Now, those who were scattered, I'm back at verse 4, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, likely you're thinking, this is Philip the apostle. We know it's not, right? He's been, Luke's been intentionally telling us that the apostle stayed in Jerusalem. This is not Philip the disciple. This is, Acts chapter 6, Philip the table waiter. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. And they said, please, the whole gathering, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and Philip. This is Philip the table waiter, not Philip the disciple. Philip the disciple is not here. He's back in Jerusalem. Philip the table waiter is the one that, that reaches Simon the magician. Philip the table waiter is the one that reaches the Ethiopian eunuch. That's what, Again, he's a preacher. And, like Stephen, we're going to see, he, it's, it's supposed to just be the apostles doing signs and wonders, but here we have Stephen, the table waiter, and Philip, the table waiter, performing signs and wonders, healing people that were possessed and healing people that were paralyzed and lame. That's why I say over and over, I don't know that Acts 6 is just about deacons. I think there's more to it. Because you've got them preaching, you've got them doing work of the apostles. But this is Philip the table waiter. And he's got a different mission than Stephen. Stephen preaches to the religious synagogues and then to the religious council. He reaches the perceived elites of the city. That's Stephen's job. Philip has a different job. Same kind of position, same kind of gifting. They're both table waiters. They're both preachers of the gospel. They both are gifted with being able to heal or do signs, if you will. Stephen goes to the elites. Philip leaves the town and goes out into the countryside, if you will, and reaches you know, the more common folk, the, the people that were pushed out. He goes to the Samaritans, the people that were not considered elite. As a matter of fact, the people that were considered half-breeds because they had intermingled in their, um, in their Judaism during the, the um, Babylon or Assyrian uh, taking over. They, they had babies with the Assyrians. And so they were half Jewish and half, you know, not Jewish, if you will. And so because of that, the regular Jews that stayed faithful in the two, in the two kingdoms looked at them with much derision. As it says, it says in John, I think it's 5, the, the Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. They have nothing to do with them. Philip, probably a Hellenist, probably a, a Greek-speaking Jew, someone who could understand a little bit, Philip, and all the other church that went with him, now refugees, understanding what it meant to be a refugee. I mean, he's, he's one of the commentaries I said, Stephen was the first martyr. Philip was the first missionary. He was called to another city. As a refugee, he went and pr- proclaimed Christ. So we have completely two different callings. Same gifting, same group, same table waiters, and everything. So there's a, there's a missiological takeaway from this. For every single person in here, when you compare Stephen versus Philip, it's this. Some are called to preach to the perceived elites of the society, like Stephen. Some are called to preach Christ to the common, 
like Philip. That's the, tr- that's the truth for all of us. Every single one of us are called. Now, sure, there's crossover. Of course. We live li- pretty, pretty amazingly transit lives. We're all over the place. But on the whole, likely, you're Philip or you're Stephen. Stephen preaches Christ to the Jewish council. Philip preaches Christ to these Samaritans. Both preached Christ. Both were the table waiters. Both did signs and wonders. Both were not apostles. Both were not the teachers, if you will. But still preached Christ. So, just to, just to get you going. It, this isn't like once you think of this and once you determine it here on this particular day. Like, okay, that's who I'm called to for the rest of my life. I'm never going to do anything else. But just to get you going. Like, just think who you are. Where's your gifting? Where's your, where's your compassion towards people? Do, do, do you line up more with the Stephen or do you line up more with the Philip? Like, has God and his gracious giftings equipped you with a mind that's very sharp and you can speak to the elites? You can, you can have a big impact on the academia, the, the deep thinkers, which spills out into a lot of the world. If that's the case, pursue that. Use that. But if not, that's fine. Both of these people, there's not like one's better than the other. Stephen's not better than Philip. They're both called. Or do you get to rub elbows and shoulders with lots more people throughout the day? All around, you just get to see a whole lot more people. They're not necessarily academia, but there's a whole lot of people out there that you get to rub shoulders with. Perhaps you're called to them. The missiological takeaway is this. Just start thinking about how the Lord has gifted you and who you get to see more and who you get to have conversations with more and be intentional as you're doing that to talk about Jesus with them. As I said in point three, it's just implicit in the scriptures that Christians lived everyday life proclaiming the gospel. So who is it that you're around? Who is it the Lord? How has the Lord gifted you with your mind? And are you using it? Be intentional. Now, Continue. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And look at this. He's not one of the apostles. He's not one of the gifted teachers. Maybe he was, but look at this. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention. Paid attention to what was being said. They literally listened and hung on every word. That, that can be you. You have the ability... To proclaim the gospel just like this. Not as the apostle teacher. But just like him. And they hang on every word. The crowds were with one accord. Paying attention to everything that Philip was saying. And they saw the signs that he did. Unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed. Crying with a loud voice. And many were paralyzed or lame. They were healed. So Philip uses this. He was similar to him. He had a fostered kinship with him because... Like the Samaritans, he was a refugee at one point. He was persecuted at one point. He loved Christ. He preached Christ. Um, Hughes, Kent Hughes said he was so full of love for Christ that he could not stop telling others about Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Acts 21 verse 8, the first place and indeed the only place that someone is literally called with a title of evangelist is Philip. When looking back, Luke's writing, he says, Philip the evangelist. The first place and the only place in the Bible that 
one specific person is given the title of evangelist. This particular guy is literally called Philip the Evangelist, the table waiter. The first official missionary was successful. But why was he successful? Because he went and he preached the word. He proclaimed Christ. He went and told them that we're all sinners, but God is a God of mercy. John 3.17 says it this way. He didn't send his own son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So as he preached the word to them, telling them the bad news that we were sinners, following up with the good news that Jesus was sent to die for all of us that we can be saved. Everyone needs to hear this message, both sinner and saint. Spurgeon says it this way. You and I must continually drive at men's hearts until they're broken. And then once they're broken, we don't leave them there. After that, we continually preach Christ crucified so their hearts are then bound up again. And when this is accomplished, we must continue to proclaim the gospel till their whole nature is brought into subjection to the gospel of Christ. And so, Philip preached this way to the whole man. And as he went, he did signs and wonders. He healed people. So he preached Christ and met physical needs. So here's the fifth. And I I mean, I have said this so many times. You know exactly what point number five is. You should know because I say it so much. When we're doing missions, whenever we're reaching the city, whenever we're reaching people, we should also go in this two-pronged approach, if you will. Um, The fifth missiological takeaway is this. Our missiological pattern is to be made up of both gospel proclamation and mercy ministries. We as the church, should pursue both. Over and over and over and over and over in the scriptures, the pattern of doing evangelism is that way. The mission of God as it unfolds throughout the church um, is over and over showing us gospel proclamation, mercy ministries. So those are the five missiological takeaways that we see just in this short little scripture. And I'm hoping that you don't feel condemned or you don't feel like you stink and uh, I never get this done. How come I never ever do this? Every time we talk about evangelism, I always like feel like a failure. That's not my goal. My goal is that you see this and that you're encouraged to say, I can do this. I can live life every single day with gospel intentionality and I can gospel other people as I go through life. And what's the result? What's the result? It's key that Luke shows us in in chapter eight, verse one, we go from execution and persecution Verse 8, joy. Like, that's a pretty big jump from verse 1 to verse 8. Execution and persecution, joy. That's what happens. Here's the result when we do that. When we're living out missiologically the way the Lord wants us to live. So there was much joy in that city. When I read it, I would think there was much, you know, conversion. That's how I would think that Luke would write it. So there was a whole lot of people that gave. So there was much convert. That's not what he keys in on. There was much joy in that city. It was joy. Just to read a few of the Psalms of the overflowing joy that Christ brings to us. Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand and pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, 6. You make him, which is man, most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre of God, my God. The highest form of joy that you can find is in God. 
is at the right hand of God. That's why there was exceeding joy in the city because people that were lost had found God. I should say it this way. God had found them. And that resulted in joy. The whole city was brought to joy because Philip, in midst of persecution, chose not to keep his mouth closed, but to do evangelism. So, let's see the entire city of Rock Hill be brought to joy in Christ by doing the work of evangelism here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy. We thank you for saving us. We pray that as we go into the Lord's Supper, we will remember that because you've saved us, we come to the table in celebration. We come to the celebration, to the table in joy that you have not counted our sins against us, but instead you have made a way through Christ and because of Christ, we now can be saved. As John three seventeen says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I pray that we would approach the table in celebration this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name.